Well, this morning, obviously, we keep working our way through 1 Samuel here. And uh, as we do so, we experience something of the uh, roller coaster ride that exists throughout the narrative of Scripture with regard to Israel's faith. Uh, last week, we were in 1 Samuel 7, and we saw there how the people of Israel, Israel went through this process of, of significant renewal in their relationship with the Lord. That was chapter 7. And now we're here in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we're right at the peak of Israel's roller coaster life of faith, and we're about to go down again. Because in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people are asking for a king. Uh, so far in their history, Israel has had a more tribal structure. There are elders over families in Israel. There are judges like Samuel, whom uh, God has raised up during their life in Canaan. Uh, so far, Israel has not had a king ruling over them like the people groups all around them. Uh, but in this chapter, they demand a change. They want a king. And as we walk through the events of this narrative, what, what we see is that as Israel asks for a king, uh, they're not merely concerned to revamp their political or social structure as a people, but ultimately what we see here is that their request for a king indicates a rejection of the Lord Himself. Um, now, now, as we look at this chapter then, and as we, as we seek to make application of it, it does help for us to quickly remember why we have those, these Old Testament narratives to begin with. Um, Israel asking an, an old prophet for a king in a land in a time far, far away, it can seem so removed from contemporary application. Uh, why do we bother with a passage like this? But it helps us to remember why we come to these Old Testament scriptures. And a passage like this is a good place uh, to take this time to just briefly remind ourselves of these things. Uh, because uh, for all the reasons we have to study Scripture, and there are many reasons, there are, there are two really big reasons to come to the Old Testament with regularity in our studies. Uh, one of those reasons being that these Old Testament narratives and the people that are depicted in them, they serve as an example for us. Even, even uh, though the situations in historical and cultural contexts are far removed from us, now, the Apostle Paul actually makes the point to the Corinthian believers that these Old Testament passages do serve as an example. These events uh, give us a kind, of, a kind of mirror we can hold up to our own lives of faith and consider our own posture toward the Lord in light of what's going on here. The, the human heart is the human heart, no matter the geography or the place in time-space history. And so these events give us an example by which we can check our own hearts as we, as we seek to follow Christ. And then uh, the second reason for our Old Testament study, a second primary reason at least, is, is one that we continually remind ourselves, and that is that the purpose of the Old Testament Scriptures is to continually and constantly direct our attention toward the Lord Jesus. As we come to the Old Testament Scriptures, they are designed purposefully not only to accurately recount historical data in the lives of the people of Israel and so on that serve as an example for us, but they are purposefully inspired to direct us in our anticipation and expectation and recognition of the Lord Jesus and who He is when He comes. So uh, we, we, read, we mention passages like John 5 often where Jesus actually holds the leaders of His day accountable for not seeing Him for who He is because after all they had the Scriptures that were directed to him. So, so as we study our Bibles, we say things like, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And we say that on purpose because it takes both the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to mature us in Christ-like faith. And so we come to this passage about Israel's request for a king, mindful of the fact that this narrative is not just a, a preserved and maybe interesting record from antiquity, but this is preserved truth ordained by God for our present progress. 
even as obscure as these narratives can be at times, this is here by God's design for our immediate growth and benefit. And I know you know that. I just say that because it's important to, to remind ourselves of these things from time to time because, because we want to remember there's great purpose in studying uh, passage, passages such as these. So, uh, with that in mind, First uh, Samuel 8, here we have Israel asking for a king. And, and in this event of Israel's request, what we have is a, is a critical and sobering piece of instruction, ultimately, in, in what it can look like, um, not merely to request a change in leadership structure, but ultimately, we're given an account here of what it looks like to reject the Lord Himself. So it's not a very happy topic to consider, but it's a critical topic. Uh, what does it look like to reject the Lord who's shown himself to be the God of such great and particular power and grace for his people. That's what this chapter is is working out for us. And and while uh, that's the main thing that's here in chapter 8, there there are a lot of of things to cover here. There's lots of ground to cover, so we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, But with all that's here, we are actually going to do something I've managed to not do all the way through 1 Samuel so far. I don't know if you've noticed, but you should because I've been working hard at it. We've actually been taking a chapter at a time. Have you noticed that? Which is a personal best for me. Although I'm breaking the record this week, I'm breaking the streak, and we're going to take 1 Samuel 8 in two sections. So, so, so this is going to be, uh, what does it look like to reject the Lord, part one this week? Very fancy title. Next week will be the same thing, just part two, and we'll finish out the chapter. So that's, that's how we're going to approach our study today. We're actually going to work our way up uh, from uh, chapter 7, verse 15, just through verse 8 of, of chapter 8 today. That's how far we'll get, and, uh, and it'll be helpful just to know that as you follow along. Uh, but in thinking uh, about this, this, this uh, fact of Israel's rejection of the Lord as king, in thinking through these things, no doubt uh, we know all too well what it's like to have ups and downs in our lives of faith. Uh, no doubt there have been times when persisting in a life of trusting in the Lord uh, has been very challenging for us, whether it's the distractions of life that cause us to, to only see uh, what's right in front of us, and in that case, forget who is actually above and over all things, whether it's those distractions in life that come, or whether it's the pressures of those around us who, who look at us with shaking heads when we bring up our trust in the Lord. There are times when rejecting the Lord uh, may, on the one hand, seem like an easy default option. We looked at that at length as we studied through the book of Hebrews. This is not a, a problem that only occurs in the Old Testament. Uh, So there are times when rejecting the Lord seems like an easy default option, or maybe it's just a passive temptation that that slides in as we go about our lives trusting in Jesus. There's this sliding back from a significant posture of faith oriented toward God. So in our own lives, or maybe even as we've observed the lives of others, we can sometimes see a faith that was once robust become eroded. And the question is, uh, what's going on with that? Uh, We need, when these kinds of things occur, we need to be able to perform gospel diagnostics in our lives, and and under the Scriptures, we need to be able to understand uh, the way in which these temptations can come to us. We need to put them in their proper light. Um, And so, that's what we're going to do as we we come to this passage. Today, we'll, again, just take uh, up through verse 8 of chapter 8, and we'll leave the rest for next week. Uh, But we are going to begin in verse 15 of chapter 7, which is really uh, where it seems like a logical narrative break begins for this section. You've you've heard, I think I've told you before, but there's the story of the person who went back and added the chapter headings in the the Bible for us. Of course, those aren't part of the inspired text. They were added later for our help. And and, and as the anecdote goes, the person was uh, in part uh, sitting at their desk in a nice, calm environment when they were putting in the chapter divisions. And the other time, they were racing through the wilderness on their horse. 
as they were trying to write in uh, where, where the chapter breaks were. And this is kind of one of those horseback situations. Probably, uh, if we'd like, we could, we could move that up a bit, but again, in the end, it doesn't really matter. We just start where we need to start. Um, so, uh, verse 15 of chapter 7, we begin there as we, as we take this section up through verse 5 of chapter 8. And what we're going to notice there is that when this temptation becomes present, when this temptation surfaces to reject the Lord, this can often come in the context of a perceived void. A perceived void. Um, so, if you look at the text, uh, the perceived void, the, the piece that's apparently missing or about to be missing in Israel is leadership. Uh, starting there at the end of chapter 7, we read about Samuel's traveling leadership and function in Israel. So we read in verse 16, for example, about how he would go on this annual circuit to judge Israel. Uh, so Samuel would, would make his rounds of various cities. He would offer leadership in those places. He would make uh, judicial calls, no doubt, on various issues among the people. And then, verse 17, after making his visitation rounds, he would return home uh, to Ramah and he would, he would exercise his leadership role from there for the remainder of the year. And it was also from there that Samuel would perform uh, priestly functions. Uh, so we remember uh, from the incident back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel where uh, the Philistines overrun the Israelites. When we reflect on that incident from later places in Scripture, we know that part of what happened there was the worship uh, center for Israel at Shiloh was destroyed. Uh, so currently there's no uh, center for worship among the people of God. So, so Samuel has, has placed this altar there in Ramah where he, where he uh, no doubt makes sacrifices and leads the people in worship. Uh, so all in all, the, the, the last verses of chapter 7 describe a generally a healthy exercise of ministry on the part of Samuel there in the lives of the people of Israel. And then time passes like this. But then we get into chapter 8 and we're told Samuel grew old. And uh, while the passage of time was conducive for repentance, uh, it was conducive to repentance for the people of Israel back in chapter 7, we saw that. Now the passage of time has brought about concern among leaders in Israel. And that concern is around future leadership. And in verses 2 and 3, we read about Samuel's sons. And the eerie thing about Samuel's sons is that they're not really any different from Eli's sons who were judged so significantly by God back in chapter 4. Eli's sons served as priests. We remember that. Now Samuel's sons, they serve as judges here. But both pairs of sons were totally and completely corrupt. Well, why Samuel appointed his sons as judges, we're not told. But his boys, so there's Joel and Abijah, they, they were crooked. In fact, uh, the Hebrew text in verse 3, it uses the term twice that, that means to bend off from going in the direction that something should be going. So verse 3 literally reads, the sons were bent toward dishonest profit, took bribes, and bent justice. We know just from, from studying the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that, that Hebrew, of course, doesn't have italicized fonts for us. It doesn't have exclamation points for us, but it does have the capacity to repeat words for emphasis. And so we have that repetition of the word to be bent off or, or turned, turned to the side here, which is just emphasizing the fact that these boys are set on grow, going in very crooked directions, contrary to the justice that they should be upholding. So that's what's going on with the boys. There's concern about their leadership, obviously, as Samuel's growing old, uh, obviously, because they're no good. So, so what's going to happen? There's this apparent void that's present. Now, uh, right here, uh, we can just put, put a brief parenthesis in and, and say something about Samuel having corrupt sons. And our, and our minds probably go here quickly uh, because, of the, because of the drama around Eli and his corrupt sons. So we remember that. 
um, it, it's very easy to, to come to this passage and start thinking about Samuel's corrupt sons um, and, and Samuel's parenting and so on and start thinking that Samuel is no better than Eli. And, and we remember how Eli and his whole family line ultimately were condemned by God's uh, pro- uh, prophetic visit there to Eli. And back in chapter 2, they were all condemned. Ultimately, they were, they were even killed. But the Eli, evil of Eli's sons and Eli's personal indulgence of his sons in their sin, and then not just that, but even Eli's own profit from their sinful uh, actions, all that led to God's judgment in their lives. So here we are, and we wonder, is Samuel just the same? Is he uh, unfaithful as a father because of his corrupt sons? We're reading through the narrative, and, and, we, and we can't help but, under, uh, but, but start to wonder this. Is, is Samuel just the same? Well, here's the thing, to quote Monk. Here's the thing. Uh, the text doesn't tell us that Eli was corrupt, or that Samuel was corrupt like Eli. The text doesn't make any mention of that. But while Eli was prophetically condemned, for his parenting in the text, most of chapter 2 is actually devoted to that, right? He didn't restrain his sons, all that kind of stuff. Well, Eli was condemned in the text of Scripture, Samuel isn't. In fact, um, in verse 2, Samuel makes his boys judges, which does strike us as a, as a poor decision, and we could uh, speculate on some things there, but, but he does make them judges in Beersheba, which is about 60 miles away from where Samuel's living. So, so he makes them judges, but, but then he puts them at big distance between, uh, between where he's at and where they are. So he, he makes this space. But, 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 but here's, here's the lesson in reading our Bibles well that we want to think about. The whole topic, interestingly, of parenting in the books of Samuel and Kings is something that we, that we have to handle carefully because it does come up. Actually, it comes up with, with some regularity as we go through the narrative. Now, Eli has bad kids, and he's condemned as a bad dad. Samuel has bad kids, but he isn't condemned as a bad dad. He's actually comforted by God later in this chapter. Uh, Coming up, King Saul, King Saul, he's a terrible dad. He actually tries to kill his son with a spear in chapter 20, which is low on dad of the year scores. Tries to kill his son with a spear in chapter 20, but what's that thing about, about bad dad Saul? What does he have? He's a very good son in Jonathan, doesn't he? He's a bad dad, good son. King David is a bad dad, the text tells us. That's why he has a bad son, Absalom, 1 Kings 1. So bad men, bad kids, Eli. Good men, bad kids, Samuel. Bad men, good kids, King Saul. Bad dad, bad kids, King David. And then to top it off, we can't miss that one of Samuel's corrupt boys here is named Abijah, which in Hebrew means the Lord is my father, Yahweh is my father, right? And, and, and we, we think about that in the context of passages like Exodus 4, where the Lord even refers to all of Israel as His firstborn son. And we see in this passage how, how corrupt Israel really is again, even personified kind of in Samuel's boy there. So, so, so even the good Lord has bad kids. The good Lord also has the perfect son. All that to say, we have to be careful with our conclusions from a passage like this, where the text doesn't go into inspired comment on matters. We really need to be careful with this ourselves. So so Samuel's boys are clearly parallel to Eli's boys. They're bad kids. They bend toward corruption in their leadership roles in Israel. Samuel's boys are like Eli's boys, but Samuel isn't like Eli. He's not condemned by God because of his kids' behavior. These things are nuanced, you see, but, but we're helped in this to remember to read our Bibles and make application really carefully. And I guess I'll just be honest with you. What set me off is I read an article. I came across an article this week in my studies about, about um, uh, how Samuel was a bad dad, this parenting article about Samuel uh, being, being a bad father. And really, the article was just bad Bible reading, which led to guilt-inducing article writing, and it just annoyed me. 
We have to read these things carefully. We can't make comments that the text doesn't make. So, so that, again, that parentheses, we'll just set that over there. But it just is a lesson in reading our Bibles well as we go through 1 Kings and we think about a topic like this. We need to be careful. So, back to the main line. The perceived void that the leaders are concerned about includes Samuel's corrupt sons. Samuel's old. Um, leadership's going to be lacking, or so, at least so the thinking goes, when he dies. And if you look at verse 4 of, of chapter 8, it reads just along those lines. We read there how the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. Uh, verse 5, they said to him, look, you are old. It's a great way to start a conversation, isn't it? You know, just to come up to somebody, have a serious conversation, and you, look, you're just, you're just old. You're old. It's not very nice. Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. So on one level, the elders are concerned about this perceived, perceived uh, void of leadership, and, and, and so they ask for a king. And actually, this concern reflects uh, another sort of pressure, which we're clued into down in verse 20. So it's not just this void in leadership, but down in verse 20, the people are going to say, uh, we want a king who will fight our battles for us. In fact, later in chapter 12, Samuel's going to be uh, talking to the people about this episode where they're asking for a king, and, and he actually says to them, he makes the comment that when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king to reign over us. So, so in the immediate context, it's not just a lack of potential leadership here, but there's also this war brewing, and that tension is there for the people of Israel. So, so we put all this together, and there's, there's a perceived void in Israel. Samuel's getting old. His sons are corrupt. They can't lead. We don't want them to lead. And, there, and there's this threat of an imminent attack upon Israel. So, this, so the, the elders come asking for a king. Kings, after all, lead their people, uh, lead their people into battle, hopefully victoriously. Uh, so just like all the other nations have a king to do that, we need that too. That, that's what they want. We need a king. And, uh, and well, at first this might seem innocent enough in terms of a request, what this proves to be is an indicator of the fact that once again Israel is rejecting the Lord. Something God, God is going to say directly here in the next, in the next section. Uh, but, but here there's this, this perceived void. And we can just reflect on this for a moment. Uh, we're, we're purposefully talking about a perceived void here because really while there may be uh, fairly pressing needs in Israel, that does not mean that the need will be left unmet. This angst and concern on the part of the elders here actually indicates that they've forgotten the ways of the Lord toward them. All, all through the book of Judges, if we just think historically, and, and, and when Israel was, was so often at the height of their disobedience, instead of a void remaining, what would the Lord do? Well, He would raise up a profound leadership in, in their time of need to make sure the people remained safe and, and all of those kinds of things. We think of Samson and Gideon and Deborah and others. And, and then in Israel's more immediate history, just in the storyline of 1 Samuel so far, the Lord raised up Samuel to replace corrupt Eli uh, because the people needed that kind of, uh, that kind of renewed leadership. So the Lord, the Lord has proved Himself not leaving a void in leadership among His people, but as they trust Him, He provides righteous leadership for them. And then... When it comes to being worried about approaching kings in war, the, the very point of the previous chapter was that the Lord himself fought for his people. Well, this might have been about 30 years ago in the life of Israel, chapter 7 to chapter 8, at the same time the Lord has profoundly proved that he's the one who literally thunders against the Philistines and grants Israel their victory. He's the one who fights and wins for them. You see, while there, there, there may be this perceived void in Israel, we use that word perceived on purpose. 
Because there's not an actual void. The Lord is for them. And he's proved it time and time and time again. Back in chapter 7, in fact, Samuel set up that Ebenezer. Remember that stone of remembrance to actually uh, counteract this very kind of thinking that's now begun to go on within the, within the context of Israel's leadership. The Lord is the one who continually, faithfully cares for his people's needs, whether it's providing a prophet or a judge or whether it's, it's fighting a battle and gaining victory for his people as they trust in him. So we think about that, and this is where we can start to, to sort out some of the anatomy of what it looks like to reject the Lord. Because there can be sets of circumstances in which we look out at what is tangible immediately around us in our lives and what is maybe typical in the lives of people around us. So tangibility, give us a king. If we had a king, that's something we could see, we could look at, we could even bow down to him. Give us a king, that's tangibility. Typical, give us a king like the nation's. When the pressure is on, we can easily slide into thinking we need what we can touch right now and we can think the solution will be what's commonly relied upon even in the world around us. We, we can be caught up looking um, out to the tangible and typical and we can forget to look up, which is exactly what they're doing here. We can forget what we're saying, God our help in ages past. What does that also mean? He's our hope for years to come. We can forget that in the times of those, of those stormy blasts, He has been our shelter and He will be our shelter. The leaders of Israel have exchanged their posture of prayer to God uh, for help and provision like they had back in chapter 7, ultimately for a demand for something that looks just like the people groups around them. And, and again, it repays us to hold this passage up like a mirror and ask if it reflects anything of our own life before God. We can face uh, similar things uh, things that, that maybe persist in our lives or things that we faced uh, with faith historically. But then as a result of time passing and influences changing, we can face those similar circumstances thinking that, that maybe temporal human solutions are the ultimate answer. Of course, we praise God for His grace and the, and the human help that we enjoy in all kinds of different ways, but there's an ultimacy to the Lord as the one who provides for us, and we can lose sight of that. Instead of our first course of action being one of crying out to the Lord, like back in chapter 7, and first, instead of our first course of action demonstrating that dependence that you, O oh Lord, must be the one who comes and helps us. Instead, our, our first course of action, and I speak for myself here, my first course of action can so often be to engage in what is tangible and typical as I look at the world around me. Oh, this is how that group is dealing with this. This is how my friends over here are navigating those particular pressures. Those seem like reasonable options. Let's just run with that instead of pausing and remembering. The Lord is actually the one who fights the battles for us. The Lord provides for our needs. Just like in chapter 7, He brought the victory. It's not that we don't have any responsibility in these things, and it's not that we don't engage in activity in these things. Israel did go out and fight, but the critical order of chapter 7 is what? The fighting came after the trusting. The activity came after the yielding of their hearts to the Lord for help. And so we can just reflect on this. I, I can ask me as I ask you, are the circumstances of life, or maybe are there circumstances in your life where the mere uh, accessible, tangible, typical solutions are looming very bright, and as a result, have I, have we, lost our posture of trust? Have I lost my longing for the Lord, my returning to the Lord, my crying out to the Lord? Have I perceived a void that's not actual, 
But in all truth, the Lord actually has proved historically and will help me again presently. He's proved to be the one who's powerful to care for me. Have I perceived a, a void when there really isn't one because I have the Lord for me? So these are important kinds of questions. And they're important because, because uh, to end up in a place like these leaders is actually indicative of a fairly devastating spiritual condition that's going on in their hearts. And, that, and that's what we see uh, next here. There's this devastating spiritual condition in verses 6 to 8. In fact, why don't I just, I'll just read those verses again for us. Verses 6 to 8. When they, when the leaders, the elders said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Okay, so Samuel, here's the people's request for a king, and we're told that Samuel considered their demand wrong. Actually, the word that's used there in verse 6 of Hebrew is the basic word for evil. He considered their demand evil. But rather than immediately chastising the people, Samuel actually continues to prove himself a very faithful minister under God, doesn't he? Where, where instead of allowing for a knee-jerk reaction publicly, Samuel goes to God in prayer, which is just a whole world of lessons for us just in the context of, of spiritual leadership and wisdom and life in general, isn't there? Instead of a knee-jerk reaction, he goes to God in prayer, and Samuel prays, laying out his concern before the Lord, and the Lord responds, telling Samuel to listen to them, which is something we'll actually work out in more detail next week, so we'll think about that more, more later. Uh, he said, listen to them. Uh, but then he also responds in verse 7 by telling Samuel, um, uh, by providing for Samuel this kind of spiritual diagnosis for the people. So, so he says, they haven't rejected you. So that's a word of comfort for Samuel, isn't it? Because it's not, it's not as if Samuel has failed in his task as God's messenger, like, for example, Eli did. Samuel hasn't failed in his ministry as a leader among the Israelites. They haven't rejected Samuel. Instead, the Lord tells Samuel uh, that what's going on in this request for a king is they've rejected God himself as their king. That's, that's verse 7. The Lord explains things further by telling Samuel that the behavior of the people is basically the same as it's been since the Exodus. This is just nothing new, the Lord says. They're doing the same thing that they've always been doing since I brought them out of Egypt. They abandoned me to worship other gods. At the root, God is saying, this asking for a king that they're doing right now, this is an idolatry thing. Now, again, we need to take a moment and work to understand what's going on here. Because at one level, if we're thinking with our, with our whole Bible in view, it can actually startle us how upset Samuel gets about all this first off. And then we can also be a bit surprised by the fact that Israel's asking for a king is tantamount to them rejecting God, and it's just a manifestation of this idolatry problem. We have to understand this well, because if we just are reading through our Old Testament, it's not like having a king in Israel is something that's condemned. We think, after all, David, what is he? Well, he's a king after God's own heart. That's a pretty positive commendation on the part of David's throne. Kingship isn't bad in and of itself. In fact, thinking back through the Bible, we find one of the most commending statements on the matter in Genesis 17, when the Lord is speaking about the extraordinary blessing that He's going to extend to Abraham. 
So Abraham and the, and the commitment God is making to Abraham, that extraordinary picture of God's committed faithfulness and Abraham's response of faith, so central to what it means to know God uh, throughout the Old Testament record. In that interaction between God and Abraham in Genesis 17, in the context of blessing, the Lord promises that kings will come from Abraham's line. That's part of his promise to Abraham. That that means a king of Israel is part of God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Which, of course, climaxes in the kingship of Jesus. But the text doesn't read singular, it reads plural. Kings are going to come from your line. That's that's part of the promise. But we have the same kind of positive statement in God's blessing of Judah in Genesis 49.10. Then in Deuteronomy 17, Moses presumes the people are going to ask for a king like the nations. And he actually gives directives on how that king is supposed to behave. Here's, here's what they need to do if they're going to be the king of God's people. So, so it's not like asking for a king is immediately, apparently sinful as we reflect on it from Scripture. In fact, from, uh, from Scripture, we, 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 we actually eventually expect to see kings in Israel. This is God keeping His promise. But here, it is no doubt sinful. Samuel himself sees the request for a king as evil. And the Lord condemns this request for a king as a rejection of him, ultimate idolatry. So how do we handle it? Well, we preach two sermons because we can't fit it into one. That's what we do. But but as we think about this here, there are two things going on that, that really reveal the root of the sin in this request. One main trouble is the people's base lack of trust in God that's reflected here. The the, the Lord is the king who fights for his people. He's presented that way many times in Scripture, the king who fights and triumphs for his people. That's who the Lord is. In fact, Moses sings a song about it in Exodus chapter 15 where he says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord is Israel's ultimate king. And even men like Gideon, who have their own stumbling and falling there at the end, but Gideon acknowledges this. Remember Gideon's amazing victory because of the Lord back in Judges. And in Judges 8, the people want Gideon to to set up a kingly dynasty for them. They're so taken with him and and what he's accomplished. But he responds by saying, I will not rule over you. He knows it's the Lord who does the work. I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon had an idea that the Lord himself is king of his people. The Lord is king. The Lord fights for his people. Scripture historically shows this to be true. And the real kicker in all this is in the relative recent experience of the Israelites in chapter 7, this has been shown to be powerfully true. In chapter 7, it's clearly the Lord who thundered against the Philistines. The Israelites went out afterwards to mop up, but the Lord brought this kingly kind of victory for his people. This is what kings do. They deliver their people from threats and all of this. The Lord did so extraordinarily, powerfully, and miraculously. He's the one. So the people's request for a king is counted as wrong here in part because it betrays their lack of trust in God as king, even though he is the one who fights for and keeps his people as a good king should, as the perfect king should. But but it's not just a lack of trust that's here in this request. Well, what's also here betrays the people's desire ultimately to be in charge of themselves. They, they, They don't just want a king. They want a king like the nations around them. And in the nations around Israel, so in the, in the Canaanite people groups that are all around, as one commentator described it, within the context of Canaanite kinglets, okay, kings didn't just function as, as battle leaders. Kings functioned often, as they, at least as they were understood, as what we might call God handlers. Right? They were kind of idol whisperers. 
Well, we see this play out in various passages of Scripture, but, but, but it's certainly witnessed to in other ancient Near Eastern documents as well. The, the, the idols of the land around Israel were understood to be fairly codependent deities. They're kind of fussy. They, they were powerful, but they would get grumpy. To, to get what you want from Baal, for example, meant you had to, you had to get his attention and keep him happy. And, and a large part of the king's role in the nations around, the pagan king's role, was to arrange for that kind of God manipulation. So that when you wanted the God to do something for you, the, the, gods or the, the God was happy to comply when the request came. The king helped facilitate that. Uh, really, what's going on here for Israel, as we think about it, is a throwback to their chapter 4 problem in 1 Samuel, except now they've revised things a bit. Back in chapter 4, Israel thought they could manipulate God. You remember how? By bringing out that ark as they face the Philistines in battle. If we just had the ark with us, then God's going to do what we need Him to do. Obviously, that went very badly. But, but here, that same kind of manipulative idea is present again. It's going on in their hearts. They want a king, and as the Lord knows their heart and reveals things to Samuel, they want a king because they're idolatrous. They want a king because kings can manipulate the gods, or so the thinking goes, and so they can get their own way. Ultimately, they want to serve a god of their own making and manipulating, which is what idolatry always is. When we go to war, we need a king to appease the gods so we'll win and so on. That's why Deuteronomy 17, which you can maybe read later for your homework, but that's why Deuteronomy 17 is worded like it is. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses instructs the people on what to do when they want a king like the nations around them. Recognize there's going to be a temptation. And Moses tells them what their king is to be like. And among other things, he says he's to be a king who's steeped in the truth of God's law so that he fears the Lord. Ultimately, Moses is saying to them, when you want a king like the nations around you, here's how to make sure that you don't have a king like the nations around you. Here's how you make sure you have a king who recognizes Yahweh's total authority over all things and bends the knee to him. Here's how you make sure that's the case. So, so we put all this together and we see how this rejection of the Lord takes shape so far. So, so far, there's this perceived void in the lives of the people. It's not an actual void. It's a perceived void. And instead of trusting in the Lord to raise up another leader like Samuel and his good timing, instead, they look around at the people groups who are idol worshipers. They look around at the people groups who don't have Yahweh thundering for their victory. And they make the decision to go that other direction instead. They don't demand a king because they're concerned about God keeping his biblical promises to Abraham or something like that. No, they want a king because kings are idol whisperers and they have an idolatry problem. They want divine help that's carried out according to their own prerogative on their terms, not unlike the chapter 4 situation that we studied a few weeks back. Now it's just a new angle. So, so what all this really boils down to is that in the people's hearts is this, is this disastrous uh, question, which is, how can we get around the Lord as king in our lives? Right? We, we don't want to wait for his timing. We don't want to trust in his battle leadership. We want a king who will get us the results when we want them, um, how we want them, in the way we want them, all those kinds of things. So again, we, we, think, we think about this carefully. Is this, is this something, as we hold this up as a mirror to our own heart, is this something that, that we, are, we are vigilant to watch for in our own spiritual lives? It, it, actually, it actually prepares us properly to view Christ when He comes, it helps us to view Jesus with a kind of sobriety rather than flippancy, this rejection of God. This rejection of God is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. We know that. 
it manifests climactically in Jesus' own rejection on Good Friday, doesn't it? As we think about those events, Jesus, our, our God who comes as the climactic king promised in David's line, which we'll see as we keep studying in, in, in Samuel. Jesus comes as the climactic king. He's the, he's the final victor that we need. And what do the people say when Jesus re- is referred to as king by Pontius Pilate? This is just an unthinkable thing to say if we think about this in the context of, of Jewish life. Before Pontius Pilate, he says, here's your king, and they say, crucify him, crucify him, what? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. That's a horrific thing to say. But they said it. And we can catch ourselves still saying that kind of same thing. We want a king of our own making, at least a king that's tangible and typical and we can grasp in our, in our understanding and the timing at least we can see worked out in real life and all the ways that maybe it's not like we want it, but at least we can see it happening and all these kinds of things. We think of, we think of how this plays out so often in our life of faith. We think of the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus with an idea of what it looks like to live an acceptable life. And after Jesus tells him what it really looks like to be in his kingdom, have Jesus for his king, what does he do? Well, he goes away sad because he doesn't want to follow Jesus that way. He liked his way, even though his way made him sorrowful that he couldn't follow Jesus. And sad as he may be, he'll be sticking to his program, thank you very much, because we like to have our own kings, which is really just another way of saying we like to be our own. The rejection of God as king is ultimately an attempted embrace of our own personal lordship. It's idolatry. So we keep working through this text uh, next week as well, but, but the question for the moment, the question for the moment ultimately is, who do I want, or maybe we could put it better, who do we need for our king? Who do we need for our king? Who do we desire to have for our king? We want a king of our own requesting. This is going to be something very interesting that plays out in the next section. Saul, that, that word, the name Saul is actually the Hebrew word for request. They get the king they request. But is Saul the king after God's own heart? Right? Do we want a king of our own requesting? Or do we want the Lord for our king? Where, 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 where is life really to be found? Where, where is provision really to be found? Who's the one who truly fights for his people and wins? The cross answers that question properly and finally. Who's the one who really provides for our needs with total power, not maybe in our timing, but in the context of the totality of eternity, who provides for our needs? Well, the cross is the answer to that question properly and finally. Who is ultimately the one who comes himself and delivers us from the greatest enemy of death? Who fights for us and wins? We need the one who delivered us from a greater bondage than Egypt. We need the one who delivered us from bondage to death and calls us to yield to him as master and Lord of our lives. We don't need alternative kings. We don't want alternative kings. We don't need idolatrous substitutes. We don't need something just because it's immediately tangible and the typical choice of the world around that. We don't want that. We don't need that. We need Jesus. We need the one who's the eternal king and the one to whom every knee will one day bow. And so this morning, it's just worth asking if if making that kind of statement would facilitate a change for you in any way. Would it facilitate a change for me in any way? As I've sat under this text this week, as, as, I've, as I've prayed that the Lord would move it through my own heart, because we know uh, coming under the text in the, in the context of study, that's not something that we can take up lightly. So how would this move through, move through our hearts? So here's the question I asked of my own heart. I'll ask it of you. I asked the question, if I say I want the Lord Jesus to be my king, what would change for me this afternoon? 
If I really recognize my need for the Lord Jesus, would there be a demeanor change in my life that my family might notice? Would there be a priority change in my life? Would there be an ambition change? Maybe just a tone of voice change, a behavior change, a first love kind of change. But what would change for me as I confess the fact that Jesus is the king that I need? I tell you, one thing that would happen is is angst would begin to give way to rest. Shame would begin to give way to joy. Anger would begin to give way to gentleness. Because we don't have in Jesus a king of our own making. We have a king of redemption. And he comes to us and he makes us new and he preserves us. And in this life, he gives us the power we need to live as kingdom participants, looking forward to the climactic return, which Jason prayed about this morning, looking forward to the climactic return when all things are made new and we sit under the perfect and final justice that he will effect and we will worship him. But until that day, we go in his direction. There's only one true king, and we run. We, we actually flee as fast as we can to Jesus. We flee from all eternity, all alternatives to him because we know he alone brings life. He alone brings life now. He alone brings life in the world to come. He is on the eternal throne. There is no other. So, so we continue through this chapter next week, but just here we, we, we thank God for His truth, which does search our hearts. It functions as a mirror, and we check ourselves by these things. Lord Jesus, we can say, we can say, Lord Jesus, I need you and I want you for my King. May there be no other. And so we thank God for His Word, which brings us to that place. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we, we just do make that our prayer. We confess you to be the King. You are the uh, eternal uh, king of all wisdom and power and grace. You are the one who provides for us now. You're the one who preserves us now. You are the one who has ultimately purchased our salvation through your sacrificial work on the cross in our place. And we look forward to eternity because of what you provide, what you and you alone provide. So we pray, Father, uh, that we would be drawn out in the worship of your Son. We pray that we would be drawn out in dependence upon your Son. And we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit in this, recognizing that uh, the Spirit of God in our hearts moving us toward Jesus Christ is a gift that Jesus himself has purchased for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.